Brother Adam has asked that we mark song number 10, and we'll do that and sing that at the appropriate time at the close of our lesson this evening. As was mentioned previously at the outset of the announcements, we are thankful for the presence of each and every one this evening, hopeful and, of course, excited about the thought that's ours and the privilege that comes our way of assembling in the name of the God of heaven, not to bring the benefit specifically to ourselves, although we are benefited thereby, but to exalt His name and magnify His cause. And tonight, as we're assembled in a peaceful hour such as this one, we look forward to getting the week off to a more fully positive start by our assembly and by our worship of the God of heaven this evening. For some three weeks now, counting today, we have endeavored to give some thought and reflection to the Old Testament minor prophet of Haggai. And in the course of that study, we've been not only reminded of some Old Testament history, but we've even been prompted to make application to some ways that even challenge us in our lives today. We did begin the series by learning a bit about the character and the setting of the book, the history that surrounded the writing, the problems that had come upon ancient Judah as they had returned, and the cause that prompted the writing of this book by Haggai. Not only did we reflect upon the causes that prompted the book, we even learned about God's message to them in chapter 1, consider your ways and how that their misplaced priorities were a failure on their part. And from that, we saw that our misplaced priorities can certainly be cataloged in exactly the same way. And that how God, too, reminds us, consider your ways. We then saw in the first and second lessons together the features concerning some national problems and interests and how that the matter of work was essential, that their bad investments by putting wages into a bag with holes in it had not brought them anything worthwhile. As we made those applications to our lives, we can easily again repeat those messages. And that does bring us, though, to the lesson of the night. The third and final lesson on the book of Haggai. There you see are a couple of remaining matters that are still yet to be seen in the book. And we'll look at two particular passages this evening and see if in them we can look at yet another set of ideas that not only were a great source of encouragement and hope to them, but certainly can be a great source of those same things for us. And with that in mind, might we begin our study, in particular in the following way. First of all, to set a bit of the background, let's go ahead and read these two passages. The first is in Haggai chapter 2, and we'll read the first nine verses of that chapter. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jozadek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jozadek the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. 
And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. That paragraph was a rather overwhelming thing in many ways. As you can imagine, these people hearing that delivered to them through the prophet Haggai, as we give thought to some of the things that were stated, here are some of the messages that seem to come to mind. First of all, again, their misplaced priorities had resulted in that temple being unfinished and dormant for at least 16 years. And now, with the coming of Haggai and his lighting a fire beneath them, they had again begun to work on it, and they had already done much. It would be a little bit longer before it was fully completed, but already there was beginning to rise some issues and problems. Did you note the statement of verse number 3? Who was left among you that saw this house in her first glory? There were some older people who had been taken off into Babylonian captivity. They had, of course, been alive while they could yet see that first temple, that one built by Solomon. And they recognized and well remembered what glory surrounded it. But now as they're witnessing the building of this other one, this second one looks so inferior. Might we remember that first temple, the one that was financed by all the riches and wealth of Solomon's empire, It had gold overlaying almost everything. The silver was as abundant as rocks. It was to be noted that the finery of the woodwork and the metalwork was absolutely unsurpassed. To say that it was exquisite, to say that it was ornate, to say that its finery was indeed remarkable would be an understatement. There are those who have estimated that that building, if it stood today, may well rank as one of the three most expensive buildings on earth. That gives us some appreciation of just how exquisite that particular building must have appeared. And yet as they now look at this second temple, the one that's being built not with finery like gold and silver, but just with what they could do with. They had used so many of those materials the king had given them to build their own houses. They had to try to build this with whatever they could find left. Needless to say, to look upon it, God here notes to some of them it appeared as nothing. Back in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12, there as this similar situation was in description, some of the old men cried. Tears flowed down their cheeks when they looked at this building and saw how inferior it looked to the initial one. Isn't it amazing then that God uses this as a source of encouragement? He is well aware of this matter that was prompting those tears. And in verse number 4, He says, Yet now be strong. Zerubbabel, you be strong. Joshua, you be strong. All the people, you work and you be strong and I will be with you. God has a note of encouragement for them. Might we take note on this occasion that whenever you and I feel depressed and in the throes of difficulty and anxiety, God will have a word of encouragement for us. He will have a proper word and a proper message, a deliverance of truth that can be a source that prompts us on our way toward a better feeling. He had that message for those people. Might we also take note 
that his message of encouragement and his message of hope was sounded in a rather powerful tone. Though we will return to it in a moment, there were several verses in which the thrust was this, I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I will shake all nations. We may well ask, what did God mean by that statement? To what end was He pointing and what direction was He going? Well, you might know, whatever it was, it was a tremendous source of aid and encouragement and hope because He says, believe it or not, this latter house will be more glorious than the first one. I can imagine that some of those people must have been dumbfounded. How can this ever be? When God straightforwardly to them in verse 9 said, This house that you're now building is going to be more glorious than that first Solomonic one. You and I, before the lesson's over tonight, we'll see if we can wrestle with how that came to pass and how God brought that promise to fruition. But at this point, let's read another passage. In verses 20 to 23, the last section of the book of Haggai, we have another message, another deliverance of prophecy that meshes beautifully with the one that we just read. It did occur a few days later. But beginning in verse 20, the inspired prophet declared, And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. In this we find an additional word of encouragement specifically directed to Zerubbabel. He, of course, was the leader of this group. He was their governor. He was the one in charge of directing the building of the temple as well as the overall direction that the rebuilding project was to take. It was to him God had this special word of encouragement. And you might notice in it, he again mentions the shaking of the heavens and earth. And he also makes mention of the overthrowing of kingdoms. Finally, he even makes note so beautifully about a signet that Zerubbabel was to be. All of this was reckoned by God as a source and sign of great hope and forward-looking progress. As we seek to look at these passages and extract from them some lessons for us, let's seek to do that by particularly seeing if we can identify the shaking and the other things that God is here describing. We'll do that by using some of the thoughts on this slide. What is it that is under description and that is under discussion here? First of all, there's no question this was a tremendously great event, whatever it was. As God looked down the stream of time, He used a future tense set of verbs. He said, I will shake the heavens and the earth. It had not yet occurred. Whatever this was, it again was to be in the future from Haggai's time. That, of course, could mean that it has already occurred by your time and mine. This does not mean that we may be necessarily looking toward the end of time. 
we should at this point be quick to say that there are many in our world who will camp on verses like this and affirm that this points to the rapture. And that this is the event that God meant when He said, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and I'm going to draw all nations. Let's be quick to say that's not what this is referring to. In fact, it has nothing to do with an event like that. There seem to be three rather amazing clues in this that may point us in the direction of what it was that this was describing. And as we look at these three clues, might we notice the first one was this. Looking back to verse number 7, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Whatever this event involved, it would be an encompassing fact that would find fulfillment in the desire of all nations. And it might be interesting to notice that the King James translation here is the better one. The American Standard renders it the precious things. But really the word desire is a more appropriate translation. This event would in fact be the desire and the fulfillment of the desire of individuals from all nations. Secondly, we might also take notice in verse number 9 that this particular matter would involve peace from God. It would make available the peace from God and that again will be a tremendous pointer directing us to what the fulfillment of this great event would be. Thirdly, in verse number 23, we notice that calling Zerubbabel a signet was also a rather critical part that was to go along with this great event. At this point, might we see if we can pull those matters together and identify what this great event was to be. As you can see on the slide, all three of these point directly down the stream of time to the Son of God and His work on earth. Jesus the Christ, His coming, the greatness of the kingdom that He put in place, and the character of what was to be available to the human family through the nature of that kingdom. Let's see if we can, in fact, affirm all those matters. Go back to the first one. The desire of all nations. How often did we appreciate from Old Testament prophecy as well as New Testament reality that the kingdom of the Christ was to be a universal matter and all people of all places who would have the desire to be saved would be able to appreciate the fulfillment of that yearning and the fulfillment of that longing. In Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 1, we learned all nations would flow into the church. All nations. Not just a selected few. Not just a hand-picked and few number. But he there affirmed in verse number 3 that all nations would flow into the glorious body known as the kingdom of our Lord. Even beyond that text in Isaiah 2, in Colossians 1 verse 23, we come to that New Testament occasion on which we so dramatically read about this fulfillment. Just as surely as Jesus had told His apostles in Mark 16 and verses 15 and 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. There were no humans exempted from the message of the gospel. No humans lifted to a plane where they did not need it. You go and preach it to every person everywhere. 
No wonder when we read then in Colossians 1.23 that by the time Paul penned that Colossian epistle, he could affirm that every creature under heaven had been blessed to hear the message of the truth. As we give thought to those two matters, they have harmonized beautifully with that prophecy of Haggai 2, verses 7 and 9. Perhaps we can also turn our attention to Titus 2, 11. For there we so easily read that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared, not to the United States of America only, not to the British Isles only, not to the Spanish nation only, but to every creature. And it is in regard to that true and wonderful feature that we're able to see the next element. Because nextly, God through Haggai had said that on this great event, peace, God's peace will be brought. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, isn't He, in Isaiah 9, 6. Isn't that beautiful refrain set forth in language like this? But unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And as that verse goes on to list His delineations, He's called the Mighty Father, the Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, and the Prince of Peace. Jesus is, you see, that Prince of Peace. Even from the days of Genesis 49, 10 onward, in which Shiloh was going to come, and the Lord is that Shiloh of heaven sent for the benefit of you and me. Jesus stated in John 16, 33, In this world you shall have tribulation, but be not afraid. I have overcome the world. Two chapters earlier in John 14, 27, He had said, My peace I leave with you. The Lord, you see, is the one described in Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That peace, you see, is through the agency of the Christ. And isn't it wonderful that you and I could enjoy that level of peace? A person who is overcome by a frenetic character, overcome by a frenzied despair, doesn't know the peace available from God, the peace that is available through the agency of the Christ. And yet Haggai said this was going to accompany this shaking of nations. These two matters so far have pointed directly to the beauty and majesty of the Christ. What about the third one? We had noted in verse 23 that Zerubbabel was here likened unto a signet. What is a signet? A signet has reference to a signet ring or a seal. Often in that day, a ring was used to put a seal of reliability and authenticity upon a particular document to affirm its credibility. Here God said, Zerubbabel, I am giving you a certain word of credibility and promise. You will be a signet that all this is going to happen. The greatness and fulfillment that will be echoed throughout this second temple will in fact redound unto the great glory of the signature character of you. And furthermore, down the stream of time, the nature of you being a signet will redound unto the greatness of this shaking of nations. How did all that come to pass? What role did Zerubbabel play in it? Perhaps that answer is in Matthew 1 verse 12. On that occasion we find the statement that Zerubbabel was in the lineage of Jesus. He was listed among that genealogy that ultimately came to 
Mary as well as to Joseph, and Jesus descended through His lineage. Isn't that a remarkable thing? There was the fulfillment of that promise to Zerubbabel. He was blessed to be listed among those that were in the lineage of the Son of God. God kept His promise, didn't He? It would have taken over 500 years, but He kept His promise. Perhaps in light of all of that, it brings us to one final thought. It is again that statement that God made in verse number 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the first one. As this particular lesson proceeds onward, might we give some thought a bit later to exactly how that transpired? For now, let's seek to draw some more particular lessons for ourselves, things that might be of benefit to and for us. And let's begin in the following way. Using that thought that we mentioned near the outset of our lesson, that there were some in that day who were bothered by the seeming inferiority of this second temple. It seemingly in their mind couldn't hold a candle to what that first temple had been. Perhaps there is a good lesson in that for us. That lesson being this, that there is an inherent danger of merely living in the past. Striving always to find one's meaning, one's direction and guidance by what was perhaps in the long ago. Might we say that these gentlemen who were crying over this new temple failed to see all the glory and opportunity that rested in it. They failed to understand God could make of this new temple something great, even if it didn't look as fine as the old one. They in fact missed many beautiful opportunities because of their perspective. Is it not possible that you and I might be in a similar situation today? Perhaps we often hear those speak about the good old days. And no doubt there may have been many fine things about them. But one thing is sure, those days are history. And they are exactly in the past. We are not able to relive a single moment of them. We're not able to take anything and recreate from it what now would be future. May we ever have a desire to learn from that which was the past. But may we not be housed as if we live completely in it. In fact, the Scriptures on many occasions urge us to learn those vital lessons of the past, but to appreciate we must live in the present. And we must look to the future And only in that way can we be those appropriate and rightful servants of the great God of heaven. For example, just a few of these passages. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, Among the catalog of sins listed there was directly the sin of unthankfulness. If we're living in the past, that would suggest we're not terribly thankful for the present. We're not thankful for the blessings with which we have today and all those opportunities that God will set before us. Furthermore, we notice in Romans 1 verse 21 that those on that occasion who were unthankful allied themselves directly with the devil and against the greatness of God's mission and purpose because when they became thankful, they refused to glorify God. It's so often true today, isn't it? that a person who longs only for that which is in the long-distant past seems to live distanced from others and in such a way doesn't appreciate all that they have in this day and time. Wasn't it true in Psalm 118 verse 24, This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. 
even looking beyond that. Notice some of the positive admonition that God gives us to appreciate the blessings of today. We might well begin that by looking at Philippians 3 verse 14. Though we've often noted it, it might be appropriate to do so again. That book of Philippians is such a happy and joyous book, but yet its author was a man in prison. Its author was an individual who, for the cause of Christ, had his body beaten and battered and was thrown into a Roman prison house. And while in that position, he wrote this book we call Philippians. And in it, in verse 14 of chapter 3, he very directly could say, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We do not often find Paul speaking often about the things of the past. On occasion, he was forced to mention it to defend his apostleship. But here, his vision was to the future. I press onward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Did he not also say in this book, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He on that occasion appreciated that it was more needful for him to live so that he could be of better benefit to them. Paul didn't look backward all that often, it would seem, in Philippians, did he? May you and I learn that the past is a marvelous thing to appreciate for what was the case and the blessings that were available. But we live in the present. And can we not also appreciate another verse from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and following? On that occasion, as Paul reflected on the nature of faith, he said, But our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That verse of 2 Corinthians 4.16 is closely followed by those two which help us appreciate for what we see we have no need to hope for. Paul was basing all these arguments on the fact he was hoping for something. What was it? Verse 1 of chapter 5. For if the earth and the house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Paul was looking forward to something. He was looking forward to that time when he could be with his Lord. You and I as Christians look forward to the same. But that means we can't live in the past. For we must look to the future for that glory and for that blessing, mustn't we? To say all of that is to close that with perhaps an example. Who better than Joshua of Old Testament lore might serve as that example? Here was an individual who had served under the lovely tutelage of Moses for years. He had witnessed this man speak with God, deliver these Ten Commandments, challenge and charge the children of Israel, lead them all the way across this desert wilderness. However, in Deuteronomy 34, Moses died. Very next chapter, second verse of the chapter, God to Joshua said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, rise up, lead this people across the river into the land that I'll give them. Joshua, you can't live in the past. Moses was a great leader and a great servant. Moses is dead. It's your turn to lead this people across the river and into the beautiful land of Canaan that I will give them. May you and I learn also to be challenged and charged to look forward, not to live in the past, but to learn those lessons therefrom and to charge onward into the future, to do the work of God in the here and now and in those days to come. But perhaps a second lesson. We noted earlier 
the hint of God's faithfulness, and may we reflect upon that a bit more thoroughly. I have listed that in the following way. When some of the people were feeling a bit discouraged, the message of God was, Work, and I will be with you. Haggai 2.4 God said, I will be with you. That should have been a tremendous source of encouragement and hope to them. And it should have been a tremendous incentive and motivational aspect to go onward and to complete that temple project. If you think about the very presence of God and the nature that they were to work, might we take note that this helps us now see about the fullness of that greater glory. Hundreds of years would pass before this shaking of the earth would take place. God had promised He would be with them, but again, the shaking didn't happen the next day or even the next month or even the next year. All of them were long dead by the time this happened. But God was faithful to His promise. He will always be faithful with regard to the promises He's made to you and me as well. Never do His promises fail. In fact, on many occasions throughout the Scriptures, that faithfulness is highlighted. God, you see, cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2. He is absolutely faithful in every regard, Deuteronomy 32 4. And in fact, might we notice in regard to all of that, that even includes His faithfulness, considering the matter of temptation as we discussed this morning. He promised there'd be a way of escape and there always will be. That faithfulness of God perhaps extends all the way back to those scenes following the character of the flood. God made a promise to Noah and all his descendants, never again will there be a flood of waters like this that will come upon the earth, and what's more, the bowl will be in the clouds as a perpetual covenant and sign that I have made this affirmation. To this day, you and I still can behold the beauty of a rainbow and appreciate it as an eternal testimony to the faithfulness of the God of heaven. He has kept His Word, and He always will. It did a beautiful thing to behold that thought and how that it brings us to this last element of our lesson tonight, a reflection on that shaking, that event to which we've pointed now on a number of occasions. But let's, in fact, do it a better element of service. Some of these thoughts on the bottom of that slide, perhaps it's time to be more clear. When God said He would shake the nations, the dry land, the earth, and the sea, that was a rather poetic but yet profound and powerful description of a very special set of events. <clears throat> Earlier, when we used those three clues to help us identify that it was all surrounding the Christ, we perhaps can see that this point is simply an exposition and an elaboration of some of those that we mentioned before. But so many verses point us in that direction. In fact, I would invite you to give thought to some of these. When God said that He was going to shake the earth, He was referring to the fact that this event, when it was to occur, would literally make things new. Nothing would ever be the same again. No wonder it was such a monu monumental event when Christ came to this earth. When He in fact died at the cross, when He brought into play the reality of the church, nothing would ever be the same again. People wouldn't worship the same way anymore. 
There would be a new way to connect to the God of heaven. There would be a new basis for hope and salvation. For the first time, there'd be redemption and forgiveness of sins. We can see how that indeed things were new. Quite often in the Old Testament, this imagery of shaking the earth and the heavens was used to specify an overwhelmingly great event. Here God used that kind of language, saying in the religious realm to you people of Judah, you look upon this temple which looks so inferior, let me assure you. I'm going to shake by virtue of one coming through your lineage. I'm going to shake the earth. He will make things new and nothing will be the same again. Hasn't that become a reality? For 2,000 years, the message of the gospel has reshaped this world. Countless individuals have now lived with the hope of truth and died in the sacred arms of the Son of God. And they've left this earth knowing the peace of God, looking forward to the day of judgment, when they could in fact enter into the golden realms of the celestial city. Those matters, are they not an overwhelming sense of newness? What all those Old Testament characters longed for, you and I now have as reality. Peter said that in 1 Peter 1, verses 9 through 13. What the angels and prophets longed to look into, you and I now enjoy. That thing that Job never had in Job 9, 33, you and I now enjoy. We have a daysman betwixt us and God. Christ Jesus, our Lord, the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. With regard to those matters, look at some of the other things. Entrance into the holy place and the most holy place. In the Old Testament, only one man, the high priest, could enter that most holy place and only then once a year. But now, through the agency of the blood of Christ, all of us can enter into that place. The golden city that you and I call heaven. That message of the Hebrew writer, is it not an overwhelmingly positive one? It is a way to appreciate the shaking to which God referred. In Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11, how that Christ is the basis and bedrock of all of this. The Hebrew writer said, But Christ is come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, as he began that discussion, notice he's referring to the Christ and the blessings available through him. But then he continues, Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of goats and of calves and the sprinkling of the, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the statement of the Hebrew writer. And what a blessing it is to hear him speak about, we don't use the blood of goats and calves, sprinkling the ashes of a dead and dumb animal, but we have the pure, sinless Son of God who shed His blood for you and for me to purge our conscience one chapter later in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 9. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest 
standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. That's reading through verse 14 of Hebrews 10. By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Have you been perfected? Have you been sanctified? The offering has been made. We just need to avail ourselves of it in obedience to the gospel call of invitation. Christ, you see, was found often in the book of Haggai. The prophet looked down the stream of time and stated about the greatness and glory of the Christ. And that is the explanation of verse 9. How could it be that that new temple would be more glorious than the first one? Here's the way it was more glorious. Jesus, the Son of God, walked in that second temple. He came to it. He taught in it. He preached in it. He performed miracles in it. Jesus often came into that second temple during His preaching ministry. The Lord graced it with His presence. And on more than one occasion, He in fact fashioned a whip and ran off the animals that they had placed in it. For they had made into a den of thieves when it was supposed to have been a house of prayer. You see, because the Son of God graced that second temple, and it wasn't built on the finery of gold and silver. It was built on the finery of the Son of God. That's what made it more glorious. And today, it doesn't take a church building with a lot of gold and silver. It takes a church founded on the truth of this book. That's what makes it fine. That's what makes the Pippin Church fine. And that's what makes your life and mine fine in its reflection to God. Not the amount of money in a bank account. Or not what other finery of clothing we may wear. As we draw this lesson tonight to its conclusion, may we notice again the centrality of the Christ in this book and in the centrality of Christ in the New Testament. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. These concluding thoughts draw this lesson to its finish. We have noticed, first of all, as we started the lesson, another historical framework looking at verses 1 to 9 of chapter 2 and the sadness that accompanied some of their reflections to this new temple. But we learned in this that there is a danger of living in the past. We also came to see in this lesson the faithfulness of the beautiful God of heaven. And finally, we learned that the greater glory of that second temple was housed in all the features surrounding the Christ and that that great event, the shaking of the earth to which Haggai wrote, was in fact the coming of the Christ and the gospel message that He brought into reality. Tonight, if that message was so great, if it was such an earth-shattering event, that it was described by God as a shaking of the earth, it would behoove us to give the greatest attention to it. Have you obeyed it? Have you given your life over to it? Again, nothing would ever be the same. You cannot worship God acceptably today under a patriarchal regime or under a mosaic code. We must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24, in the friendly confines of the teachings of the Son of God. Are you a Christian, a faithful one? If not, Haggai wrote about what you would be blessed to appreciate. Have you attended to those matters? You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Romans 10, 14. You need to, in fact, repent of the sins in your life. Luke 13, 5. 
you must confess His name as the Son of God, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins. Only then can you be saved, 1 Peter 3, 21. If you haven't attended to that, why not tonight? There could never be a better night than this one. If you have attended to that, but you've left your first love, Revelation 2, 5, you have walked away from the one that died for you, why not come back to Him? You will never find a better master, for there will never be another. The only other possible one is the devil, and he won't do you any favors. If we could pray on your behalf for the forgiveness of those sins, we'd be happy and honored to do it tonight. If either of these things would be the public need that you have, why not let that be known? Come forward, even now, while together we stand and while we sing.